Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the over-the-top studios at Scratch Labs in Boulder, Colorado, this is an interesting show, the physical and mental aspects of wising up. With Coach John Hughes and Dr. Robin Saltonstall, what what? An incredible panel we have. John Hughes, cycling coach, MBA, Dr. Robin Saltonsall, PhD, and an unemployed podcaster, ski bum, bike bum. I, you know, I, where could we get better? <laughs> Robin and I go way, way back. She was my swim coach in about 1990, 1991. Yes. No, 80. Yeah, 90. Yes. And 90. we also rode, rode tandem some together back then. Um, which was a great adventure since neither one of us had much experience. And I had my eyes closed. <laughs> I, I was driving. I, I tried to keep my eyes open most of the time. <laughs> and she moved to Boulder before we did. Wow. So you've been here quite a while. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, Robin, give us a little bit of background on what you do. So I'm in, one of the things I do is I'm an integrative health practitioner. So I work with people primarily in their 50s and 60s who are in this transition in midlife where all of a sudden what we used to like beats and we don't anymore. Or we do hill repeats and we ask ourselves why. And um, what happens at that stage in our life, and it's a very important developmental stage. It's not talked about in the human development literature, but we're all living it. Now, John, you've been a coach for quite some time, but you've got a varied background. Uh, I've worked with you for almost 20 years and uh, just the changes that you've done in my training. But let's hear a little bit about your background. My background has actually been very useful in a lot of ways. I uh, graduated from Stanford and worked in the theater for eight years. So I picked up a lot of skills like electrical, carpentry, so forth and so on. No fine carpentry. Our motto is from 40 feet away. Nobody will notice if it's really fine. And... Uh, was an arts presenter there for a couple of years, and I went to work in the provost's office. I love this. Stanford's gotten one of the great business schools. They paid to send me to, to UC Berkeley's night school. So I got an MBA there, and then uh, came to visit Robin after I dropped out of RAM and <laughs> decided to move to Colorado. And uh, that year that I dropped out of RAM, it would have been 94, I led my very first bike tour. We started in San Diego, and I got up over the mountains, and I was looking east, and I thought, I don't want to go back to Stanford and work. So it took a little while to figure out what to do, moved to Colorado, became a cycling coach, kept leading tours. George was on my second ever tour, uh, was asked to write a book 
uh, distance cycling. I now write for Road Bike Rider. In there, I also did some divorce counseling, having gone through a divorce. Not something that was fun, but it was really very useful because most people were kind of getting into midlife. And now I'm semi-retired, write for Road Bike Rider, uh, coach a few really interesting people. George is pretty interesting, you know, as, as an athlete and as a person. And I try to ski and ride my bike a lot. So I actually went through, a, I was a public speaker with pharmaceutical companies for quite some time. My background's in radio. And when I was younger, my dream was to teach skiing, be on the air, and uh, become a trainer for a ski school and coach racing in the summers and put on bike events. And I didn't achieve that in my 20s because of a lot of health issues, but I've had some really serious health issues lately. And uh, all of that's now happening. So I don't know, it's like the culmination of all my dreams coming true and a totally changed brain I, from injuries or just maturing, Robin? Both. Oh, okay. <laughs> maturing is a kind of injury, <laughs> or we think of it as a kind, we kind of experience it as a kind of injury. But we're calling maturing but, wising up, right? Yes, yes, because we do wise up. We're actually, I think, growing past our own values. It's like we, as we get, as we mature, we grow past our own, the values we had as a young person, and we have to reestablish a whole new set, which might include some of the old ones. Now, John, let, I'm let me, looking at you. Let me you. parse the grammar just a little, Robin. Do you mean we mature past what we think is valuable, that is activities, rewards, and so on, but we keep our values like not cheating, yes. not stealing? Yes, good point, good point. I think what happens is we, as we wise up, we actually widen our value set. So where when we're younger, we're focused more on ambition, career, that kind of thing, getting a family, and we have there's some biophysical substrate to that too, but we focus on those things. As we hit this mid-stage, we start to look at those and say, what else is here? Yeah, through my 40s, I was very focused on career, good career, better career, six-figure salary, and winning races, and I actually won a few. Uh, and then had a really bad accident. When I got into my 50s, I was much started to get much more interested in relationships, in a variety of athletic activities, just to have more fun. I was far less interested in winning. I just wanted to do rides that I thought would be mentally challenging as well as physically hard. Yes. Can I throw in a little science here? You can. I just wanted to. Admit, I like that you said widen our values rather than widen in our hips. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we do. Both happen. Oh, well, okay. for some people. For some people. Well, but you know, you can think about widening in your hip as having a, a bigger base. There you go. <laughs> but the science, the science part, and actually, you're referencing it, John. This we have what's called a second myelination in the brain that happens somewhere between 48 and 62, generally. In men, it happens a little later than in women. It doesn't matter. But what, happen, what happens biophysically is that our brain, we go from dial-up to broadband, and that part of our brain that allows us to see the big picture. So as we do that, what happens is we're looking at our life. We're doing races, for example, as you were saying, John. And you do the race, and what used to have meaning, there's more meaning there. We actually ask more questions about, what does this mean? And we look at the, what's underneath it, which is the discipline, the resilience, all of that. And that's what becomes important, not the detail of I did a 100-mile race. I think this is 
an example of what you're talking about. When I was doing a 100-mile race, 500-mile race, I was only focused on two things, Lee Fuzzy Mitchell behind me in the pace van and looking down the road and how fast I can go. And now even when I do a hard ride, I'm focused on getting where I want to get to, but I also say, wow, look at the flowers. Aren't they neat? And I'd rather have someone along and we just sort of chit-chat and I like to tell stories on Facebook with lots of pictures. So I start inventing, oh, what's the story of this ride that I can take a lot of pictures and kind of illustrate it in the evening. So in the course of one athletic slash physically active experience, I'm doing multiple things. Whereas in my 40s, I was just doing one thing, getting down the road fast. Exactly. That's what, And that, circling back to this, we grow past what was valuable to us in our younger years and it expands so you can do the same ride now and you probably will but the meaning of it is different it's almost as though we move past recognizing that the ride itself is an end to the ride is actually the means to meaning that makes a lot of sense when i do a when I do a challenging ride, I learn more about myself. And part of it is, in the 40s, it was mostly physical. A little bit of mental. Robin helped me with some mental stuff back then. And now, as old as I am, 67, I can improve a little physically, but I'm never gonna be able to keep up with somebody 20 years younger. But if I get sharper mentally, that's a way to, to continue to compete. Or I can look at something really hard and I can say, well, I can train a little harder and kind of get up that. But if I really focus on doing it, then I can do it. Another, another way of thinking about changing what's valuable is how I devote my time. Back in the 40s, my 40s, I worked and I rode really hard. And I had a wife at home, but that was really not very important in my world. And now, having a social ride with my friend John Elmblad is far more important than training. And if Carol needs something, I'm there. I don't have to train. Or if we have something arranged, a social occasion with her three daughters, uh, I might say, well, I'm going to go for a ride an hour in the morning, and then I'll meet you. So, but George, I mean, I could be out hammering on my bike mm. or in the weight room. But coming in with George and Robin is now more valuable to me. And we actually did a podcast on the bike yesterday when we were hammering each other's guts out. <laughs> well, it wasn't exactly when we were hammering each other's guts out. Cause, <laughs> <laughs> but in between hammers, one of the ways that I gauge perceived exertion, I've had George doing a lot of what I call sweet spot, and he ought to be able to talk in one or two words. We were beyond that. We were to what I call no sub-bar. <laughs> push it any farther and I was going to blow chunks over the handlebars. Now, I hate bringing myself in as an example in podcasts. I've gone four and a half years pretty much staying in the background, but I kind of want to throw myself into this one because I am kind of a weirdo. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm the way things have been going for me lately, just a lot of success. And it's making me wonder if I'm feeling like I've got the body of a much younger person now with the mind of someone who has wised up. When I was 21, I was hit by a drunk driver. I was getting on a motorcycle, 
devastating physical injuries, uh, severe brain injury, which caused seizures. And um, it's like my life has been one big rehab since 1984. Uh, because when I recovered from the physical injuries, then the seizures started. And uh, then I became a speaker out of that for a pharmaceutical company. I got onto a clinical trial and found a med that stopped the seizures. Uh, it always seemed like I'd start to get success at something and then I'd get laid low by something else. Uh, I was racing really well in my 30s and then just had s extreme fatigue. It turned out I had Hashimoto's syndrome, which is autoimmune. Uh, my body's, my antibodies were attacking my thyroid. I had no idea that that was such an integral part of giving you energy and actually making you feel alive. And when I got that taken care of, it was like, you know, just life blossoming. And then I get hit by a Suburban. Multiple surgeries after that. Rehab, win Race Across the West, get inducted into the Race Across America Hall of Fame, uh, and then get hit by a deer and break all the bones on my left side, two in the pelvis, another severe brain injury. I barely remember 2015. And, uh, but then I started teaching skiing again and ended up with a couple of black diamond classes and becoming a trainer for the ski school. <laughs> I didn't even know if I'd ski again. And now again, I'm, I'm riding better than I was in my 30s because my thyroid's taken care of. So I'm much faster than I've been in 20 years. But I just, I mean, I'm really focused on competition. I want to win. But the, there is a change. It's, I, there's more an element of fun there. Uh, I take my training really seriously. But at the same time, family comes first. Uh, and friendships. And I don't really care about the future anymore. I almost died twice. And... I just don't care. <laughs> As a I'm way more focused on the here and now, which I never was able to do before. I can really enjoy the moment because I'm just grateful for what I've got. As a coach, I see a fairly small sample of people in their 50s and 60s. I specialize on coaching them. And they hire me because they have a goal. They're goal-oriented. And they want training toward that goal. And my guess is the general population in their 50s and 60s is not so goal-oriented. And what I end up doing a lot with my clients is saying, you know, it's your wife's birthday on Thursday. You don't have to train. I got one client, solo guy, doing Race Across the West, Jan Kramer. He always schedules his overnight rides. So he's back in time to take his wife out to dinner or have a birthday party with the kids or anything like that. And he's training hard, but family for him is truly first. I think career is third. He's a doctor, but he's got a great set of values. That's funny, because I just did an 18-hour training ride on your recommendation, but I started it after I read Bedtime Stories to Amelia, my daughter. Perfect. Exactly, exactly. I'm gonna say, I think we as a, um, uh, we as a group here are, as you're saying, John, a particular, I mean, we have, we have goals, we recognize that making goals, and your point about that a lot of people may not be that way who are in this demographic. And I think for those folks that um, there's a real issue about getting information out so that they 
can actually take on this part of life because the commercial inputs that we get are, well, just do a second round of your 20s and 30s. Make yourself up so you look 35 and buy a car and pretend you're you're doing that. And for those of us who are who have an athletic background, we actually know about training. We know about what it takes to do a new race, so to speak. And as we do these new races in our life at this time, with this widened awareness, there's more sense of our connection to others, to our significant others, our children, et cetera, and to what we're doing as a contribution somehow in the world. I mean, your story was amazing in terms of, you know, the thumb in the sky comes down and keeps rubbing you out and you rise up again. And there's that huge resilience and that that comes through. So of course you're gonna wanna go compete again to just have that energy of it. And it's not, a younger person would probably say, I just need to win that race. There's not a whole lot more there. And that's not to put that down, it's that we're not, we're not developmentally there yet. We don't actually need to have that kind of awareness yet. We're in the midst of trying to you know, build ourselves in terms of who we are in the world when we're younger. Get a mate, get a job, get an identity. And at this point, we start going, well, what is that identity for? What am I doing here? What's all that doing about? How am I being in it? That's interesting you said that because as you were talking, I was thinking, I don't really, I can't identify myself as anything. <laughs> and I, I don't think that's necessarily bad. No, what's important is how are you doing it? How are you in your day? Are you relating to your daughter? Very much so. John, you're looking. I, I think it's very, at least for me, it's very difficult um, now to reinvent an identity. Uh, I related my, my past, and in each of those jobs I had a goal that I was striving toward, and in some cases I said, hmm, not worth reaching this goal, but I it was always goal-oriented. And part of it is, who am I now? What's my goal? I see a therapist from time to time, and he always asked me, well, what do you want to be in your 70s and 80s? Now's the time to start building toward that. Who do you want to be? And it's pretty challenging to figure that out. And part of my strategy is, and it may be what George is talking about, I have some small goals today. Do the podcast, get packed up, drive down to Denver, and I got a few goals for the rest of the week. But beyond that, I don't have any goals. And, and it's fairly satisfying to have a rolling set of goals. You kind of get done with something and you pick out something else. Carol and I have been together for 10 years and when I get kind of in this really funky mood, she says, you need a goal, John. And see, she suggests, well, how about doing race across the West? Are you kidding me? <laughs> how about riding a century? Well, that could be kind of interesting. How about we climb a 13er? Well, that'd be great fun. So we're teaming up for Race Across the West next year, the three of us? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I will revive my uh, stellar skills as a crew chief. <laughs> you know, I actually, I was in the bank the other day, and a teller asked if I, she was looking at my accounts and said, we need to get you set up for retirement. And I just looked her right in the eye and said, you think I'm going to be alive at 65? You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Her expression was priceless. 
An, an interesting thing that happens, and, and I think it's part of getting older with me, is I go into the bank and I almost always have a two or three minute conversation with the teller about something. There's the connectivity piece. We start to, our whole, the relating with people becomes incredibly important. Yeah, I, I was down in Denver uh, over the weekend and went to get some gas, and I thought, I know it's not healthy, but I really want a soda. I kind of need to wake up. And I went in there and talked to the lady for probably five minutes. And it was Sunday, and she was talking about the people that just rushed through, how frustrating they are. And I said, yeah, I know. I mean, you know, I had to drive down from Boulder, and it took longer because people were in my way. But really, who cares? Exactly. Another part of that, I think, a great example um, I had to go strike an art show that Carol was in, take it down and get it loaded and then drive her car back to her dad's. And I was in a funk and I was driving through not one of the better neighborhoods in Boulder and I'm surfing the, the radio. And all of a sudden I find a, a channel playing Brahms Requiem. And that's another way that my interests have broadened. Different kinds of music, really enjoying music, really enjoying concerts. We go to 10, 12 concerts a year. You know, that speaks, too, to what you were saying about creating the stories out of the ride, writing those up on Facebook, having the photographs. We move from a very narrow goal focus to multiple, I'm not going to call them goals, but multiple aspects of our awareness. So beauty, art, relating, all of those become very important. And those go toward that, how am I doing this life of mine? I might have little goals, but how am I doing it? And that becomes paramount. Now, I want to talk about the connectivity again. I know I've, when I was younger, being out with my dad or someone who was more wised up than I was, and watching them connect with a younger female. And it was almost embarrassing for me as the person in between, kind of like, are you trying to make yourself younger? What, what's that all about? Mm-hmm. I actually think that is a difference between looking out of the, uh, our eyes when we're young and looking out of our eyes when we're older. And I think it's why when we're younger, we don't like it when our parents want to kind of friend up to us. And w because we don't have this myelination in our brain yet that actually allows us to kind of participate in this relating. We're just not there yet. So we see our parent, you saw your dad kind of flirting with, you know, and from his point of view, I will bet, and, may, and actually you should probably speak to it, if as, as a male at the age you are now, if you were to talk to a young woman, you're not flirting with her, are you? No, I feel like I'm talking to someone who would be my daughter. Exactly, and so there's this generosity and benevolence in your speaking, which when we're younger, it's like, whoa, that guy's coming on to me. Or we view people as a tool, as tools. Mm -hmm. What can this younger person, Bruce was the name of that guy that succeeded you as swim coach, what can Bruce do for me to help me advance my goals? And now when I meet people, I, I think about how they can help me get from A to B. Mm -hmm. And if it is, it's a small part of the calculus. It's a very small part. I know, and we spoke earlier. I know in my 20s teaching a women's group, and I worked with women's group for 30 years whenever I was able to ski and teach um, but there is more flirting there and this year uh, I had four women's groups and there's none we're talking about our kids it was really 
I felt like it was some of the best ski instructing I've ever done because I really cared about them improving as skiers and seeing the whole mountain. Yes. And it made it, I think, more fun for everybody. Part of what I've been experiencing that I think really is a lot more fun, um, I had a strange and strong relationship with my dad and, and not a particularly good one and had no kids of my own. And then Carol and I got together. All of a sudden, I've got three sort of daughters. The youngest one was 13 at the time. And her dad is still alive. And I really value going down there tonight, conversation with your father. I really, you know, generation older. I really value conversations with the kids. Generation younger. I shouldn't call them kids. They're all in their 20s and 30s, but younger than we are. That's I hated being mm-hmm. called a kid when I was 30, and yet I do the same thing now. <laughs> you do. Even someone in their early 40s. <laughs> mm-hmm. Another thing that I'm finding is I'm building a broader um, collection, group of friends with more diversity, and that's really important to me. I was really glad to reconnect with Robin a while back, really glad to reconnect with George. I've known both of them a long time. Uh, I started going to a continuing education group that focuses on foreign policy and does readings and talks foreign policy, and a friend grew out of that. So the more kinds of friends I can find now that are different make my life much richer and help me accumulate more what I call intellectual capital, keep my brain from rotting. Question, when did you notice that happening in you? I, I, I went through a period, I was writing the book, I was you know, leaving a, a job rather unpleasantly where I withdrew and I didn't have contact really with anybody except Carol. And I started coming out of that, riding with my buddy John Elmblot and in the last couple of years I've realized I want to broaden my expansive friends. That's important to me. People that have have different experiences, say different things, have different strong interests. That I want. I don't, I don't want to just talk to a bunch of cyclists anymore. I, I, yeah, I, I'm asking that because you were describing something that I see so much or hear so much in the folks I work with and in myself as well which is a recognition at some point. There's almost like a density of questions that come up for oneself that they coalesce into, I need to go cocoon for a while. I need to go in. There's some kind of change happening. And we go into that time. So you were saying you became reclusive, a little bit reclusive for a while. And you came out with this new understanding. And I'm, I'm referencing this because I think it's a, such an important time for us. And yet, we have a lot of cultural norms that tell us, oh, you need to get out, you need to get out, you need to be doing. And people will denigrate themselves for going inward and trying to figure out what is going on with me? Why am I not interested in that anymore? And I feel like I'm becoming interested in these other things. So finding support for that time, for that cocooning time or whatever time we wanna call it, which allows us to come out and say, as you just said, I want to now meet with people who are of varying ages and interests, and I'm widening my scope as a result of Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. That. I think cocoon is a really good descriptor, and, and part of it is not just the social, well, the social norms, but that I've internalized. I should still be meeting people. I see this therapist and we talk about things like this and he says, you know, John, what you need is a Nor- you're a Norwegian bachelor farmer and you need some cabin up in the woods when you need to go off and think, you can do that. And you exactly. sort of do now, don't you? I, mean, I, I Go away to Fraser and ski in the winter. Yeah, go away to, go away to Fraser and ski in the winter uh, or ride my bike. And Carol and I have got to an understanding where I'm not, you know, running away from her, I'm just more introverted. And I'm much more interesting to be around when I come out of my cocoon than if I just didn't get to go in one. And that's what's brilliant about that is you're actually becoming yourself. Becoming myself and accepting that it's okay to become myself. I'm not doing a bad thing. It's not pathology. You're not, you don't need to be on meds. You're not depressed. You're actually being yourself it's not pathology and it's also not what society says you should be spending time with your wife you should dr schiller every time he hears a should he says yeah get rid of those shoulds they're no good what do you need what do you want no shoulds and this is the time this this the the late 40s 50s 60s is the time that so many people are saying, I feel X, Y, Z, but I should blah, blah, blah. And in that, many aren't able to rise out of that or go in and be cocooned. And so that's the group I'm concerned about. It's how do you give them permission to cocoon? How do we give ourselves permission to cocoon, to do whatever we need to do to figure out what's going on with me in this developmental phase that I'm changing and becoming myself? John, I want to mention you crewed for the great grand pack masters doing race across America. And one of those racers I consider a very good friend, actually most of them. Um, but he came up to me after it was over and the uh, 2008 crash had really affected him financially and everything he'd spent his life working for. And he told me how much he admired me and wished he had lived his life like I had where I thought, wow, I haven't, you know, I admired him for what he had done. And to hear him say that after saying, you know, I'm I'm in my 70s and I've lost everything. I wish I had experienced life the way you do. That still just hits me so out of the, out of the blue. It's like, really? I I know who you're talking about. I mean, those guys were all friends of mine. I, I first met them back in 88, in fact. 
And to the best of my knowledge, none of them had spent time in a cocoon figuring out what they wanted to do. They, They all had patterns. They all had trajectories is a good word because at some point in their 50s, the trajectory was no longer upward. The trajectories curved and they started going downward. And you can either ride the trajectories you're on and get increasingly bummed out because you aren't what you were in your 40s, or you can find new trajectories. That's the cocooning. I love that because that also fits with the idea that if you stay on a trajectory, especially for professional athletes, of the biophysical model, you're dead meat because our body degrades. We have to go metaphysical. We have to go metaphysical. And so we change what we're doing physically, like you doing your rides and making your stories out of it. I swim a lot and I don't, my orientation in the water is completely different, but I want to be in there and doing it. But the meaning is different. So the, this idea of letting go of just the physical and adding on to it the metaphysical, it's expansion into a whole other arena and universe of meaning. And for a lot of uh, professional athletes, they haven't learned how to develop the rest of their pie, so to speak. They got one slice, that's it. And it gets smaller and meaner and more scarce. And that, when that starts to happen, we have to cocoon. We have to do the work we need to do to figure out what else is here. What's my resilience about? What's my discipline about? What do I know from that physical work I did? So how do we maintain relationships as we wise up? I mean, I feel like a totally different person than I was even two years ago. First of all, I, I think cocoons have different lengths, multiple cocoons. One of the cocoons that is important for me, I'm going to be in a, in a cocoon for an hour and a half this afternoon driving down to Denver, thinking about whatever I want to think about. And we're going to go up to Fraser, and I might have to go to my bachelor cabin, go ride for myself for, you know, a day. And then there are also times when I need a week to kind of figure out what's going on. And I think this relates to what you're talking about, Robin. I, I was talking earlier about the mental becomes much more important, and it's not just, by God, I'm going to learn how to really focus, and I'm not going to waste any energy. There are all kinds of aspects to a person individually. My therapist talks about above the neck and below the neck. And once you start thinking about and exploring those, it's like your head's going to explode in a really good way. You have a whole different set of what's valuable. You find different ways to relate to them. So why can't we enjoy this when we're younger? Mentally, it's actually a great experience to be going through. I think... Part of it is that we actually have to go through the experiences of our youth to have a density of experience to be able to do what John's referring to. We need some paint on the canvas. And when we're young, we're putting paint on the canvas. And then we reach a point in midlife where we go, whoa, here's my canvas. And I know I don't have as many years left and I've still got some blank spaces on this canvas, and I might want to rework what I've already done. So that it, it is, it requires that we have a density of experience. Oh, I like your metaphor, and, and part of it, I think, is a recognition 
I'm never going to finish that canvas. And I don't want to. I want it to keep expanding. I want to keep finding different colors. We go to mural size. And we, we, we go to mural size. It yes. gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. It, it may even not be graffiti size, you know, with figures and so on. It could mm -hmm. be completely abstract. Or it could be something very tight, very controlled. And, you know, going back to your question, one thing that we have a hard time as Westerners remember, remembering is that we are more than just an individual. We are part of a human species. And there are evolutionary mandates that are happening as well. So we can kind of trust that as we grow as a human being, as part of the human species, there are things that are going to happen developmentally to us that have nothing to do with who we are as an ego. They just are like biological evolutionary imperatives. So we can trust the process of gaining experience, reflecting on it, doing something with that, etc. We don't need to worry, so to speak. And, and what I see in a lot of individuals are two things. A, not taking any cocoon time, not realizing that's valuable. And B, being really scared. And I was too when I, when I went through the book. I am every time I do it. You know, what Robin is talking about, of resorting things, of, of you know, I was talking about, Carol, you need a goal. You know, going through for a period when I had no goals, that's scary. It's really scary. This uh, Carl Jung talks about in his psychological viewpoint of life that we have youth and there's then we kind of arc toward our potential and midlife and then there's an arcing toward a kind of generativity and transcendence that happens. But the most scary time is when we're at the arc and the sun is the brightest and showing us so much and it's like what do we do with all of this? And we're, we, it, for us, it feels like, for us, I mean Westerners, it feels like loss because our culture tells us we're in biophysical loss. You're degrading, you're losing your children, you're losing your job, you're losing your mind, which is not actually not true. We don't lose our mind. But the cultural information coming in makes it even more scary because we're doubting the very thing we're in. And the different, what we have to do, and this is where I think athletic prowess really comes in, is say, I can do this hill. I can do this. I just need to be here doing it. And a lot of people need help with that. Co they need a coach. I, I think that's right. And I would hypothesize, and I'd be interested in what you have to say, Robin, particularly that the three of us that described earlier are multiple careers. And having changed my career half a dozen times, it's going to be a little scary when I stop coaching, but I know that I can go through that process. Same thing as doing a 1200K. Okay, here's another one. It's going to be hard, but I know I can do it. So that's an important part of it. But the, but the other thing that I think is really hard for all, well, I, I think people that have had one career and then retire are the ones that have a midlife crisis or have a midlife crisis earlier rather than, we have multiple changes of direction the three of us have had and continue to rather than to come into, oh my God, a stoplight, it's not turning green. What am I gonna do? 
I'm going to have to get out of my car, get out of my comfort zone. Uh, and I suspect that the majority of Westerners are more that way. Yes, I would agree. I, I was listening to George talk about his multiple accidents. Um, my leg was crushed. I came back. I've had a couple of other ones. And part, it, it relates to what I was just talking about. Okay. My butt really, really hurts. So I had eye surgery. And, and when they were done, the nurse says, on a 1 to 10 scale, what's tolerable? I said, oh, 7, 8. She says, what do you mean? I said, well, look at my leg. <laughs> you know, if, if I'm hurting as a 4 when I get out of here, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because that's so <laughs> identical. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> people come into the doctor's office when I was working yeah. in a doctor's office. What's your pain level? I'm at a 10. And I'm like, really? And you're moving. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And that is, that's where the, it, we, we, the learnings are what in, are important. It's like they're the means. They're not an end. The accident is not an end. It's actually a means to this much deeper understanding of who we are and how we're traversing our life. I, I think your point that athletics and accepting change is really important. Um, I turned 66 last year, and I had a couple of goals. One was I was going to climb at least 66,000 feet on my bike. It had to be different climbs. And then in the winter, I was going to ski. Uh, well, when I turned 67 this year, I was going to ski races totaling 67. And I went into the races, and most of them, I was last. But do I care? It was a great experience. I'd never raced before. And the snow stopped coming down in late February, and there weren't any races worth doing. Okay. Not the end of the world. I've got my bike. What it amounts to is you, got, you don't have to, but I find myself in the moment. It's not that I'm climbing Flagstaff hard so that I can. Yesterday, perfect example. I wasn't doing speed work with George so I could get faster and I could do something else. I was having a great varied friend with a guy that I've known since 95. Exactly. And it was a lot of fun to yeah. just get out and hurt with you and then talk, and that was a great workout. It, yeah, sort of a great workout. Yeah, <laughs> my, my legs still hurt. <laughs> but but it goes back to the point of having diverse friends. George is A, fitter than me. B, he has a family that's here all the time. C, he's got a very different background. He's doing very different things right now. And I've got a pretty different who I am from who George is. So when we get together, we're richer from the experience than if I'd just gone out with somebody else who's a lot like me. Now, i got to bring this in. You and I spoke about it a little bit, Robin, but, I mean, talk about something where people have gone, oh, my God, you are really weird. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, I mean, after my run-in with the deer, I couldn't move. I mean, I was stuck in bed, and I would feel like I was suffocating. I was having dreams that were so vivid of zombies eating me and just ripping my body apart and watching myself get consumed. I, I would wake It was terrifying. So I didn't want to go to sleep. Uh, it was so painful to be awake, but I didn't want to take any ped, pain meds that would make me drift off. So 
it's the first time I have really wanted to die. I mean, I didn't want to commit suicide, but I just was like, can't anything finish the job? And I coming out of that really changed me. And I remember thinking, you know, if I'm ever in this shape again or where I'm just not here, but I'm still, uh, my body's still alive, I don't want my wife to be someone who has to sacrifice everything to be with this person. And so I talked to a couple of lawyers and said, how do I work it where if I end up in that medical state, I can get a divorce? <laughs> because I don't, I want my wife to live a life. And uh, at first people were just like, that's almost disgusting. And then as the attorneys I spoke with thought about it, they said, you know, that's actually a really cool idea. And I, I don't know, it seemed like the right thing to me. <laughs> I just, I love that story. I mean, it just, it's so dense and so full. But on the on the top, in terms of how I hear that, you experienced with the demise of your physicality, you went into deep connection and recognized that this person that you love, your wife, and is so important, and she will still be in the world as a physical being, and she needs, I need to give her the freedom to be, that is coming from such a, a, a font of love and deep, profound love and connection to recognize what she ne will need. And so you acted on it. And those of us who are running around in the world and our physical bodies and are going, how can you do that? Well, you're doing it because you are, you've moved into that metaphysical realm of recognizing we're hardwired for connection and collaboration. That's really what we're about. She was kind of disgusted with it, too. I don't want to be that. I was like, yeah, you don't have a choice. I want to cut you free. Yes. Yeah. And she couldn't. She's in the bounds of her physicality there. So I know we're getting into sort of philosophical grounds, but there is a lot of, of even neuroscience now that shows we're hardwired for collaboration and connection. And as we have physical, as our physical body de is declines and decays, we become that part of our brain actually becomes more uh, lit up. So there you were at the edge of death. I mean, you were at the edge of physical death and knowing it. Yeah, that's, I don't know, I'm mm -hmm. just not afraid of that, but I just, I mean, I wasn't kidding at the beginning. I just don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, people who have near-death experiences talk about having amazing experiences of feeling their connection to people both living and dead. But the, the idea is they feel their relationship to others. It's really? one of the primary experiences of near-death experiences is feeling ourselves connected. It was actually a great feel, and it's exactly. still a good feeling. Yeah. I, it, mm -hmm. Again, it really has mm -hmm. changed me, but I think mm -hmm. for the better. Mm-hmm. It's the secret that most indigenous cultures still live in, that we as Westerners who, when we adopted our sort of Cartesian model of science where the only thing that exists is what we can see, we lost that sense of connection. But if you read, you know, I mean, that's coming back. So I'm just thinking of, you know, someone like, I don't know if you all have read Maladoma Somme, but he's a 
African shaman who was raised in the Jesuit tradition and then went back. So he's got a toe in both worlds. And his point is to teach Westerners again to feel the connection that's available to us, to feel our belonging in this universe, which when we're in a near-death experience, we feel and go, oh, who knew that was there? (laughs) 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 They all know it's there. We're the ones who are (laughs) lagging. (laughs) Well, John, anything to add? really enjoyed this discussion and I look forward to another one very soon. <laughs> yeah, let me throw this in. I, I have had a couple of, well, one very severe accident similar to George's and I was close to death, but I wasn't thinking I want to, you know, not be dead. I was, I was hit when I was training for RAM and I actually had a cast on my leg and while I was in the, all doped up in the hospital, I got out because my sleep break was over and I needed to get in the van or get on my bike. And then I realized I was in the hospital and I had a cast on my leg and there was no way I could get back in bed. So that's kind of an anecdote. Um, When I moved to Colorado, my first doctor was trained in Western medicine, did his residency in Sonoma, and he was trained in Eastern medicine, Chinese. And I was getting ready to do RAM again. I talked with him and I says, you know, pain, it's gonna be really painful. He says, you need to join this class. I'm teaching people who are probably terminal with cancer, how to accept it and how to go inward and accept and explore the experiences as well as going outward. And many, not all, many top-notch athletes when the pain starts, when they hit the wall or whatever, they go inward rather than, oh, let's look at the scene, let's talk to somebody, so forth and so on. And and that's what gives them the power. And what I learned was it's valuable to go inward. Think of it as it's the cocooning, but it's also valuable to open back up, become the butterfly. You, You need the capacity to not resist going either direction. And it's really hard to to develop. Can I add on to that? No. Yes, of course. Yes, (laughs) because I love that because that is, and I think this is something that athletes are really exploring, and it's one of the reasons that we have in in the West all of this emphasis on triathlon and longer races, longer cycling races, etc. I think <coughs> it's our Western way of finding the physical gateway into the metaphysical, because all the indigenous cultures know that, that the body is the gateway to the infinite. And when we're out there and we're almost dying doing hill repeats, or we're dying because we're in the Maui Channel swim and we're seeing there's sharks down there, Wherever we are, it's that moment that takes us inward. It's the gateway inward to what you're talking about, John, this awareness. We go out through the gateway, and then we come back in, and we live some more. And what I find with those experiences, doing intervals or doing something really hard, is I'm neither inward nor outward while I'm doing it. It just takes all my concentration to do it. And then doing intervals, for example. When it stops and I'm in that, you know, that recovery mode, that's when I go really inward. 
George and I were doing fart like just sort of random let's go hard and once we were done then I went outward after the last really hard effort but kind of after each hard effort I went inward for a bit before I could that yes. was also physiological that was the time I was gasping for air and riding slowly um, but but I mean the world becomes much more interesting and I see that a lot in clients that I coach often get into their 50s or 60s and they realize a they haven't done anything very physical so they want to do a century or B, they've run all their life and they can't run anymore. Or C, they've done something else and they're, they were really good at it, but now they want to try a different thing. So most people, not all of them, but are kind of going through that shift of who do I want to be and what do I want to do? And one of the reasons I coach people only in their 50s and 60s is they're much more interesting. They have all these psychological sides they have multiple connections. I coached a guy who did RAM, but he also played handball. And he insisted Tuesday and Thursday night he was playing handball. He didn't care about his training because that was a really important connection to him. People, I'm not, not to put down younger people, but people in our age group, I think, are a lot more interesting because we've had many, many, many more experiences. Robin? I was just going to say, going back a little bit on what you were saying, the uh, the our culture, the the athletic athletics is in some ways our Western ayahuasca. It's our hallucinogenic that allows us entry into a whole different world. And I think it's very interesting that culturally we're moving very sedentary culture. We're moving toward. There's a segment that's moving toward. What what that the sedentary folks call excessive physical activity, but actually we need that. We need that ayahuasca. We need that hard press, hard work for our body to be able to be a full human being and figure out what we're doing here. And, and building on that, I think there are a lot of people in their fifties and sixties who realize they do need to do something physical and that becomes a huge, huge. mental and metaphysical change exactly. as well as a physical change. And then something similar happens, get to be our age, either A, we know we really need to go hard to maintain who we are, and that's a pretty different experience from going long chit-chatting, or B, we consciously decide chit-chatting is good that's a fine metaphysical experience. And it's a choice. And, it, we, and, and it's it, a choice. It, it is a choice. And for me, and I think for everybody, it's important that it be a conscious choice. And I think that's yeah. a good place to wrap up. Coach John Hughes, Dr. Robin Saltonstone, thanks very much for this uh, chat. <laughs> Here at the Over the Top yeah. Studios at Scratch Labs in Boulder, Colorado, I'm George Thomas. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 